One of the biggest announcements of the October federal budget was the National Housing Accord, with the goal to build 1 million new well-located homes over five years from 2024. It's an ambitious goal and here to discuss this new housing plan and how it could work is Economic Policy Program Director, Brendan Coates. Welcome, Brendan. Hi, Kat. This accord has been billed as a landmark agreement to address one of our nation's biggest economic challenges, the supply and affordability of housing. Are they right in saying that housing is one of the nation's biggest economic challenges? Well, it wouldn't surprise you, Kat, and listeners, if you've listened to this podcast in the past, that yes, we do think, I do think this is one of Australia's big challenges. Increasingly unaffordable housing, you know, it, it, it creates a whole bunch of problems. One, you know, we're seeing that rents are rising really quickly and vacancy rates are at all-time lows. So that's putting pressure on lots of people who are struggling to pay to keep a roof over their heads. So that's an incredibly important, you know, economic and social problem that we're trying to solve. Uh, you've also got the challenges around falling home ownership, uh, which is partly, I think, motivating what the government's doing. So as home ownership falls amongst younger, poor Australians, you know, then the great Australian dream sort of of owning your own home is increasingly out of reach for many people. And that has a whole bunch of downstream consequences for if you don't own your own home in retirement and you're renting, you know, half of retired renters live in poverty today. It also matters for inequality um, because those that own their own homes, that the housing haves have seen their wealth grow faster than the housing have-nots. And finally, it really matters for the economy. And I think this is part of what the Treasurer was talking about in his budget speech is, you know, when housing's expensive or there's and there's a lack of housing, when we have a shortage, which is the situation we're in today, you know, it has a whole bunch of economic consequences because people can't live close to where jobs are. They, you know, they participate less in the labour market. They feel less secure and there's, there's potentially less productivity growth. So it affects the incomes of all Australians. So it is a really big challenge. And it's great to see the government, at least rhetorically, um, stepping up to the plate so far on that one. So, I mean, Brendan, what is this accord anyway? Well, I think the accord itself sounds, you know, it's 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 an accord. So it's it's sort of steeped in the labour tra tra tradition of sort of a grand bargain between different players in the market, like the original court accords that saw wage restraint in exchange for things like the creation of compulsory superannuation, you know, Medicare and the like. What I think the government is trying to do is they're trying to get an agreement between particularly, most importantly, the Commonwealth and the states, uh, but also potentially with others like local governments in order to basically build the housing that we need in Australia. So they've got this target, aspirational target of 1 million you know, homes from the five years from 2024. There's been a lot of commentary about that target itself because, you know, on face value, it's not actually that ambitious. One million homes by 20, from five, over five years would basically be the same as what we built in the five years leading into COVID. So the target itself isn't necessarily that ambitious, but I think what's potentially much more valuable here, if it's done well, is to have the prospect of breaking down some of the barriers to getting a lot more housing built, irrespective of whatever the target is. Um, and potentially, if it's done well, could lead to a lot more housing being built in the long run. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, there's only really a media release and a kind of high-level outline available online. There's also the challenge ahead of significant work negotiating at a state, territory and local level, because there are a lot of players in this area. What do you think the accord should include? Well, I think the most meaningful thing is if it breaks down the actual barriers that are stopping more housing being built. And as Grattan has said many times before, a lot of those barriers are around how land use planning prevents more housing being built close to the centres of our major cities. 
you know, I think it's fair to say that Australia does have a shortage of housing compared to where we would otherwise like to be. You know, we have only 400 dwellings per thousand people, which is amongst the least housing stock in the developed world. And we didn't see that much growth in the housing stock per person over the course of the last couple of decades. And so that manifests itself in all kinds of ways. You know, people are living with their parents, they're living in share houses when they probably should be living in their own homes. So the challenge here is that the states control the levers. And this is why it's so important that the housing accord actually exists. And if it done well, could have big impacts. So the states control the levers around land use planning reform. But the the politics are really hard because people who live in an area where there's lots of infrastructure, there's good transport, uh, they're closer to the city, they often don't want to see more housing built. And what we see is that a lot of housing isn't built basically because, you know, local councils in a lot of states, say particularly here in Victoria, you know, prevent more housing being built because they reflect the interests of those that live there already and those that would move in don't get a say. So the number one thing that the Accord should try to do is to break down those barriers by basically paying the states to build more housing or to allow more housing to be built in their jurisdictions um, by basically pushing the states to undertake reforms to the planning system, potentially also just encouraging the states and state developers to build more housing themselves, because there's potentially a really big payoff here. So we saw, for example, in Auckland, a city of 1.5 million people, it rezoned in 2016 three quarters of its suburban area uh, to a promote more housing construction. And then resources at Yale found that basically that led to an extra 5% of the housing stock being built that otherwise would have been. And if that had occurred in Australia, that's the equivalent of rents and prices falling by 10% from where they otherwise would be. So the gains here are potentially really big. And there's a there's a history of this in Australia by, a, you know, the Commonwealth has paid the states to do things like uh, the national competition policy where they basically handed over a lot of powers to the federal government in exchange basically for cash. And you could imagine the same thing happening here the Commonwealth paying the states to force more housing to be built and basically paying them on outcomes. If you get more housing per person, great, then you get a payment from the Commonwealth. If you don't, okay, well, then you don't get that money. And that would be the incentive for, say, Tim Pallas in Victoria or you know Dominic Perrottet in New South Wales to basically push through planning changes and other changes needed to get more housing built. Yeah, I find it interesting that there has actually been kind of forerunners to this in other countries. So for me, when I was reading the accord, I thought that the maybe some of the hardest negotiations would happen on local level because of kind of the idea of nimbyism, essentially. And I find this term that they use, the well-located houses, is an interesting one. I mean, we've been pushing for high-density housing, the urban centres, but when people think of a family home, are their expectations going to be this kind of three-bedroom house with a yard? And will affordable housing need to be apartments if they're going to be well-located because there's not enough land near urban centres? So I just want to pick up on the point about local governments first, Kat, because I think that's a really interesting one. And it points to whether the government is going to just basically try to get everyone to agree to the lowest common denominator, which is where these kind of grand bargains can often end up, or whether they're going to push really hard and actually get a meaningful outcome that will actually generate meaningful change. Because local governments, yes, they do control the level of government that are approving developments, but a lot of the rules that are set in place are set in place by the states. So the more players you have in the accord, you know, it potentially you could end up with a world where you actually get less done because you've got so many people around the table and you want them to all agree. You know, I think the priority is getting the states to reform the planning systems at the legislative level. And if you do that, then, you know, the local governments who are beholden to the interests of their existing citizens 
who often don't want more housing, then it's not necessarily the case that the local government's going to agree with what's proposed and implemented at the Commonwealth and the state level. I think that's really important. The second thing I'd say is, so what, what kind of housing are we going to get? Well, look, as Australian cities get bigger uh, and this, the urban fringe is further and further from the city, 30, 40, 50, 60 kilometres away, it's inevitable that you're going to see densification. Australian uh, cities are not dense compared to a lot of other cities around the world. You know, cities like Toronto and Vancouver and Canada, which is a similar sort of settler society. And so when we've asked people in the past, what kind of housing do you want? You know, the, the expectation is people say, well, I want a quarter acre block and a three bedroom, four bedroom house. But what we tend to find is that a lot more people want denser forms of housing. If they're just not currently provided by the current housing market, uh, partly because of the planning system. So, you know, when you ask people what kind of housing do you want, roughly half of Melburnians and 60% of Sydney siders say, look, we're happy to live in a semi-detached dwelling, a townhouse or an apartment in our inner or a middle suburb uh, if that's a way of getting closer to the city and getting what, the amenity that we we'll want and we'll give up the size. But the, only about a third of dwellings in Melbourne, uh, less than half in Sydney, are actually those forms of dwellings at the moment. So we've, it's inevitable that we're going to see more people living in apartments and in townhouses. It doesn't necessarily mean 40-storey apartment buildings. It can mean taking one six, 700-metre block and turning it into three townhouses, and that could give you the housing that people need to have young families. So, I mean, just to follow up on that, where do you think the government will find the land? I did note that there was a mention of negotiating with TAFEs for uh, potentially taking land from TAFE um, in the accord itself. Um, but do you have any other ideas? We'll probably come more to the issue of the land in a, in a moment, Kat, because, you know, if you think about, you know, when government's seeking to find land, you know, you need to find land if you're going to do housing that's subsidised, social or affordable housing, that housing's got a discount to the market rent. You know, if we're thinking about where where is the land going to be found to build a million new homes that are largely going to be built by the private sector and rented out at market rents um, or sold to first home buyers, you know, those homes are going to be built by subdividing the existing dwellings that already exist in Australia's cities that are owned by, you know, private households today or by turning brownfield areas of, you know, Melbourne and Sydney and other cities into sort of medium density housing. So where's the land going to come from? It's going to come from the existing sort of land base, the, the existing geography of, of Melbourne and Sydney. As we densify, my house might become six apartments. That's how you're turning one house into six within the existing land that we have. What about the government's plans to get super funds involved in the housing accord? I mean, is it is it a good idea? I note that the government has already committed three hundred and fifty million to encourage investment in ten thousand affordable homes. There's certainly ways that super funds could help solve problems in the housing market, but I think there's been a lot of confusion about what role super funds should or should not play. Because I think when you when it's put forward, our super funds are going to help build housing. It's just, okay, what we need is super funds investing in housing and that's going to lead to more housing being built. So first of all, you know, they're still subject to the planning system. So unless you solve the planning system issues, it doesn't necessarily mean you've got more housing being built. Then if you're thinking about what role super funds are going to play, I would distinguish between, I think the role super funds really could valuably play where it would be most valuable. And then I think where the government seems to be going which is the role super funds might play in the provision of social and affordable housing. So on the first, you know, the, there's 3.3 trillion in superannuation savings in Australia. It's the fourth largest retirement savings pool in the world. And practically none of it's invested in housing, even though they invest in housing abroad. 
where we see the value for super funds to invest in housing is that they would make much better landlords than mums and dads. You could get a better rental experience for tenants. You potentially get a boost to housing supply, noting, of course, that you've got a fixed planning system and therefore lower rents. But it, and you can you can get sort of more secure rentals for tenants as well. And the value here is it doesn't require any government subsidy. The problem is that the super funds themselves don't own any residential housing in Australia that's rented at market rents. The rent that would, a house would go for on the open market is because of of land taxes. Um, Basically, this is the problem where super funds don't own any housing because land taxes in Australia are taxed at a progressive rate. So the more land you own, the higher tax rate you pay on each dollar of land. And those land taxes at a progressive rate apply to your total land holding. So if one person owns you know, an individual house, they pay much less tax than if the one investor owns 100 homes. So take the example of Sydney. You know, If you have 100 investors each owning a house, and the median price is $1.24 million, that's the median house price, then each of those investors pays no land tax because there's a tax-free threshold. The land is worth less than that tax-free threshold. But if a super fund owns the same 100 houses, they pay $12,000 a year in land tax on each home. That's a third of the rent. And so it's why super funds don't own housing in Australia where they do in the US. So the reason this is potentially valuable is because an institution, if you got them into the housing market like super, then what they can do is they can provide greater security of tenure. They have 100, 1,000, 10,000, 50,000 homes that they own. You basically get that super fund to, they will be more willing to offer more secure forms of tenure to the tenants because it doesn't matter if one tenant moves out. You know, it's supported by the other 49,999 homes. You're still getting the rent on those. It doesn't matter if the one tenant damages the property, they're secured against that risk. Whereas mum and dad landlords that own 85% of their housing stock you know, 85% is owned by people who own three or less rental properties. They want shorter leases and, you know, more relaxed tenancy laws in case the relationship with the tenant turns sour. The way in which we think the, the accord should be used is to get super funds invested in market rental housing because you get more security for tenants, a better rental experience because they're going to offer better maintenance services, you know, professional traders on call. And potentially you do get more stock if that, that wave of super fund investment helps put more stock into the market, building more homes than otherwise would be the case. But you've got to fix the way the land tax system works. Either you change the way we levy land taxes to be from the aggregate progressive rates on the aggregate land holding to a progressive rate applied separately to each holding. So there's no longer a disincentive for someone to own 100 properties compared to one. Or you you offer a separate land tax regime, which is something that basically says, okay, if you're a super fund or an institutional investor, yes, we will give you that separate land tax regime, but you've also got to sign up to some model tenant provision. You've got to sign up to a stronger set of tenancy rules. You further limit the ways in which people can be kicked out of the home. Because at the moment, you know, we've seen tenancy laws changes in Victoria and other states, and they've been improvements. One of the big issues, though, that anytime someone sells a house, they often kick out the tenant in order to sell it. And that's very disruptive, whereas a super fund wouldn't worry about that. If they own 10,000 homes, they just sell the whole thing as a block to someone else, all the tenants stay. So you could basically, there could be a quid pro quo. You have a different land tax regime for institutions, but the quid pro quo is the funds, the super funds or the landlords have to sign up to a stronger set of tenancy laws than applies to mums and dads. So that's how we think super funds should be involved in market rental housing, and it would help solve a problem that's currently built into the system. 
So just so I've got this clear, Brendan, you're saying that essentially it's really not a good investment for super funds at the moment because um, of the cost of that land tax there. And so we have to kind of reform that in order to get them interested in investing and make it worth the time. That's exactly right, because those land taxes were set up in the 19th century to break up the squatocracy. You know, that's why we set them up this way. Uh, for anyone who listened to the Henry George lecture was on a podcast the other week, this is why we did it. And obviously, this is a, an unintended consequence 100 years later as to why super funds basically don't invest in residential housing in Australia. I feel like we need to doff our little little caps and, and talk in kind of Sherlock Holmes accents to talk about the 19th century. Um, but a question that I did want to ask that kind of follows on for your previous uh, comments, the accord here is explicit about getting super funds invested in affordable housing not just housing that's rented at market rents. Is that a good idea? I think this one, Kat, is a much more mixed and murky question. At the outset, there's no doubt that we need more sort of social housing in particular. That's housing where people pay no more than 25% of their income in rent. That's why Grattan pushed for the Social Housing Future Fund, which was implemented in this budget as the Housing Australia Future Fund for $10 billion to invest in social housing. Um, but the problem with social housing in particular, but also which is where, where the rents are 25% of income, is that often involves a big subsidy. You know, if someone's on JobSeeker, they're only earning, say, 17 grand a year. They're paying 25% of their income in rent. They're paying just over 5,000 in rent. But, you know, the median rental property in Australia, the rent is 25 grand. So, you know, if it, if it costs 25 grand a year to put the house on the market and you're only giving someone a $5,000 rent, uh, they're only paying that, then there's a huge subsidy. Now, super funds are never going to come to the party and provide that subsidy because their core objective is simple, maximising returns for their members. That's the sole purpose. We want to talk about affordable housing, but affordable housing has a very particular meaning when you're talking about housing policy that can get pretty confusing. If your super funds won't bridge that subsidy gap, that government's going to have to pay. And so... If you've got government paying that subsidy gap anyway, which is what they're doing, so the announcement that you played before, there's $350 million for you know, 10,000 affordable housing dwellings. That's basically the government's planning on a, a $7,000 a year subsidy going to whoever builds and maintains those homes to cover the gap between what the, the tenant would pay at 20% below market rent and what the, you know, the house would cost on the open market. And so if government is got to fund the subsidy anyway, you've got to ask what's the purpose of having the super funds involved at all? What are they actually bringing to the table? They're bringing finance capital, you know, our super savings, but they're only going to bring that if they get a return that's commensurate with what they can get elsewhere. So they're not, they're not subsidising anyone's rent and that's the right approach. And so if that's the case, then what's the role of getting them involved? Now, it can make it potentially you can lower the borrowing costs for some of the community housing providers that actually provide this this this, this um, subsidised housing because at the moment they need to go to banks and others to get the finance and maybe super funds would be a bit cheaper. That's an open question. But if you're going to give the subsidy to the to the to to a super fund to invest in housing, the question I would ask is why not just give the subsidy directly to the tenant? Rent assistance is a very effective program, uh, we, but for a single person, rent assistance maxes out at $3,500 a year, which is less than half of what the government would offer at $7,000 a year for these affordable homes. And rent assistance is really tightly targeted. 80% of it goes to sort of very low-income households. 
there's no uh, rationing. So if you're as soon as you qualify, you're eligible. So the program grows, but the rate of the payment is too low. And so, you know, if you need to offer a subsidy to low income tenants, which I think you do, then I would offer it directly to the tenant as a higher rate of rent assistance rather than going via a super fund. And that way, you know, if a, if a, if, a, if someone with their extra rent assistance is looking for a home, maybe that home has been built by a super fund that owns it and they're charging the market rent and then they're getting rent assistance from the government. And that would be, in my view, a much cleaner, more efficient way to solve the problem because an issue that you have here is super funds will only do this if it stacks up. At the moment, it's a small asset class. There's not many people doing it because of there's not many subsidies from government to do it. My worry is that governments will overpay super funds for the subsidy they actually need to give to the tenant in order to make the whole the affordable social housing work. That's what we saw with NRAS, you know, where the subsidy was two or three times the value of the rental discount going to the tenant at the end of the day. And I think that's what we should be wary of again here. I mean, one final question to bring it back to the federal budget. I mean, there wasn't much talk of things like rent assistance, obviously, in the in the budget in October. And Jim Chalmers has a challenging outlook ahead of him uh, for the next federal budget. Does increasing rent assistance, is that something that optically probably looks bad despite the fact that the mathematics potentially works out better for the economy and for the federal budget itself rather than rooting that money through a superannuation fund? If you look at the budget papers, whether the subsidy is given to a super fund for affordable housing or it's given to rent assistance to the tenant, it still shows up as you know an, an addition to the budget deficit. Now, rent assistance, if we raise it by 40%, which is what Grattan is calling for, you know, that will cost you close to $2 billion a year. That's not a small amount of money at the moment. If you're going to offer a large number of um, of affordable homes that it gives this subsidy to super funds, it's going to cost you a lot of money as well. You know, if we think it's going to cost $7,000 a year to keep an affordable housing dwelling on the market and you want to build, you know, 100,000 of them, you're talking about, you know, putting what's that $700 million each year on the table in order for those affordable housing dwellings to be there. And there's many more people that would be eligible for an affordable home than 100,000 people. So either way, government ends up paying. And so we should go down the path of what's most efficient and what's fairest. And that is giving everyone access to a high rate of rent assistance rather than rationing a limited number of affordable homes that are offered at below market rents to, you know, those that are lucky enough to win the lottery and get one of those homes. Thank you so much, Brendan. It's been great talking to you about housing and especially the recent announcements of the Housing Accord. If you'd like to find out more about our research and writing on housing, please go to grattan.edu.au. I also recommend that you go and listen to the Henry George lecture that Brendan gave about a month ago. It's available on our podcast and on YouTube as well. If you'd like to donate to Grattan, we rely on donations from lovely listeners like you. Please go to grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. And as always, please take care and thanks so much for listening.